0: I guess the big question that I keep asking myself at the moment is whether it's possible that predictive processing, the vision of the predictive mind that I've been working on lately, is as good as it seems to be. So it keeps me awake a little bit at night, wondering whether anything could re- really touch so many bases as this story seems to. It looks to me as if it provides a way of moving towards a kind of third generation of artificial intelligence. I'll come back to that in a minute. It also looks to me as if it shows how the stuff that I've been interested in for so long in terms of the extended mind and embodied cognition, how they can actually be both true and scientifically tractable. Um, How we can actually get something like a quantifiable grip on how it is that neural processing weaves together with bodily processing, weaves together with actions out there in the world. It also looks as if this might give us a, a grip on the nature of conscious experience. And if any theory was able to do all of those things, um, it would certainly be worth taking seriously. I lie awake a little bit wondering whether any theory could really be so good as to be doing all these things at once. Um, but I guess that's what we'll be talking about. Um, a place to start for me uh, that, that was kind of fun to, fun to read and watch recently was the, uh, the debate between Dan Dennett and Dave Chalmers about possible minds. So that debate was structured around questions about superintelligence, intelligence, um, the future of artificial intelligence, whether or not some of our devices or machines were going to suddenly start to outrun human intelligence and, uh, and perhaps um, in either good or bad ways become alien intelligences that cohabit the earth with us. It seemed to me that there was something interesting about their debate, which was hitting on all kinds of very important aspects of that, of that space but seemed to leave out what looks to be the thing that predictive processing is most able to shed light on, which is the role of action in all of these sorts of unfoldings. So there's something rather passive about the kinds of artificial intelligence that Dan and Dave were both talking about, um, they were talking about um, intelligences or artificial intelligences that were trained on some kind of objective function. They would try to do a particular kind of thing. They might be um, exposed to an awful lot of data in trying to come up with ways to do this thing. But at the same time, they didn't really seem to inhabit bodies or inhabit worlds. They were, kind of, they were solutions to problems in a rather disembodied, disworlded space. And the nature of intelligence, I think, looks very different when we think of it as a kind of role in process that, that is embedded in bodies, that are embedded in worlds. Processes like that are the kind of things that I think give rise to real understandings of a structured world. OK, so something that I thought was perhaps missing um, from, from the debate that, uh, as I saw it there was a full emphasis on the importance First of all, of having a kind of very general purpose objective function. So rather than setting out to be a good Go player or a good chess player, you might set out just to do something like minimize expected prediction error in your encounters, in your embodied encounters with the world. Something that's my favorite sort of general objective function. And it turns out that an objective function like that can actually support perception and action and the kind of epistemic action in which we progressively try to get better training data, better information to solve our problems from the world that we inhabit. So, predictive processing is sort of, it kind of starts off as a story about perception. And I think it's worth kind of saying a few words about what it looks like in just the perceptual domain before bringing it into the, into the domain of action. In the perceptual domain, the idea familiar I'm sure to to everybody, is that um, our perceptual world is a kind of construct that emerges at the kind of intersection between sensory information and priors, which here act as top-down predictions about how the sensory information is likely to be. So, for example, I, I imagine that most people here have experienced um, phantom phone vibrations. You suddenly feel that your, your, your phone, your iPhone or whatever, is vibrating in your pocket. Uh, it turns out that it may not even be in your pocket. And even if it is in your pocket, maybe it's not vibrating. Um, a, good, a good story about this is that um, if you constantly carry the phone and perhaps you're in a slightly anxious state, there's something uh, you're in a sort of um, heightened, interceptive state, then ordinary bodily noise can be interpreted as signifying this, uh, the presence of a, a ringing phone. It's very much like, uh, it would work very much like, say, the, um, the hollow mask illusion, where when people are showing a, a, hollow, a hollow face mask lit from behind, um, you see the concave side of the face as having a nose pointing outwards. Richard Gregory spoke about this uh, many years ago. It's a kind of standard, uh, standard story in this area. What you want to say about that is that we human beings have very strong expectations about faces. We very much expect given a certain bit of face information that the rest of that information will specify an outward looking face with a nose that is convex and so on. Um, The very same kind of story gets to grips with phantom phone vibrations. It explains um, the white Christmas experiments which are certainly one of my favourites in this area where People were told that they would hear the faint onset of Bing Crosby singing White Christmas in the sound file that they were going to be played. Um, They would listen to the sound file and a substantial number of participants detected the faint onset of Bing Crosby singing White Christmas, but in fact there was no faint onset of White Christmas, there was no Bing Crosby signal there at all amongst what was simply white noise. So in these cases our expectations are kind of carving out A sort of a signal, if you like, um, that isn't actually there. But in other cases, perhaps someone speaks your name faintly and there's a kind of noisy cocktail party going on, your expectations about um, what your name sounds like and the importance of anything that vaguely signals what your name sounds like, they conspire to up the kind of weighting of the bits of the noisy signal that are there so that you hear your name fairly clearly. Same thing, I think. If you hear a, if you're in the shower and a familiar song comes onto the radio, under those conditions, a familiar song sounds an awful lot clearer than an unfamiliar one. People might have thought that that was a sort of post-perceptual effect, as if you heard something fuzzy, and then your memory filled in the details. But if the predictive processing stories are right, then that's the wrong way to think about it. This is just the same old story where top-down expectation meets incoming sensory signals with, um, with a kind of balance that is determined by how confident you are in either the sensory signals or your top-down predictions. So in all of these cases, I think, um, something in this sort of Bayesian brain, predictive processing, um, hierarchical predictive coding, we'll come to that perhaps later on. Um, these are all roughly speaking names for the same kind of picture in which experience is constructed at the sort of shifting borderline between sensory evidence and top-down prediction or expectation. So there's, a, there's been a big a big literature out there on sort of the perceptual side of things. It's I think it's a, a fairly solid literature. What predictive processing did that I found particularly interesting was, and this is mostly down to to a move that was made by Carl Friston, Um, the idea there was that you could apply the same story to action. So the picture there would be that um, in action, what we're really doing is making a, a certain set of predictions about the shape of the sensory information that would result if I were to perform the action. And then you get rid of prediction errors relative to that predicted flow by actually making the action. So there are sort of two ways to get your predictions to be right in these stories. One is to have the right model of the world and the other is to change how the world is to fit the model that you have. So action is changing how the world is to fit the predictions and perception is more like finding the predictions that make most sense of how the world is. But it turns out that they're operating using the same basic neural architecture So the the kind of wiring diagram for motor cortex and the wiring diagram for sensory cortex looked surprisingly similar. And this story helps explain why. Um, And indeed, the same basic sort of canonical computations would be involved in both. So that, for me, actually, is what was most interesting about predictive processing, is the way that it gives you a simultaneous handle on perception and action, shows them obeying the same kind of computational principles and immediately invites you to think about having a a model of the world that simultaneously drives how you experience the world and how you harvest information from the world. At that point I think there's a kind of standing invitation to stories like embodied cognition and the extended mind. There's a sense I think in which once the predictive brain story is extended to the control of action in this very natural way then there's a sort of standing invitation to start thinking about how we weave worldly opportunities and bodily opportunities together with what brains are doing in the sort of way that is going to make um, a systematic sense of the extended mind story but before i before i go there it's also worth saying a word or two i think about where the models that drive the predictions get to come from so the picture of perception here is that it's very much a kind of a sort of construct, that, that, of perceptual experience is a construct that lives on the border between sensory evidence and top-down prediction or expectation. Um, that's what you're seeing in the white Christmas case. That's what you're seeing in the phantom phone vibration case. But just to see a structured world of objects around me um, means to know a lot about structured worlds of objects and to bring those expectations to bear on the sensory signal. So I think these are the stories that bring a structured world into view, quite generally. Um, there's some rather nice cases where people, uh, you, might, you can find these online if you haven't heard them already, so-called sine wave speech cases, where speech gets stripped of some of its natural um, dynamics. and What's left is a sort of a uh, kind of skeletal version of the speech that when you first hear it just sounds like um, a series of beeps and whistles. But then when you hear the actual sound file and you'll play that again then it sounds like a clear sentence being spoken because now you have the right top-down model, the right expectations. Um, it's like hearing the familiar song when it's played in the shower on the bad radio receiver. It's a very striking effect and experience and I think it, it gives you a real sense of, of what I think is happening when um, a predictive brain gets to grips with a flow of sensory information. Yeah, so once you've um, once you've been played the, uh, the real sentence, it might be something like, I don't know, um, the cat sat on the mat. So you first hear beeps and whistles that might sound like boop, 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 boop. then you hear the sentence and then you hear the beeps and whistles again. But this time through those beeps and whistles, you will clearly or most people will clearly hear the sentence And after a while, you can become a a native speaker of sine wave speech so that you could be played a brand new one and you would hear the sentence through the noise. So, uh, maybe it would be useful to play some examples. Here we go. It was a sunny day and the children were going to the park. It was a sunny day and the children were going to the park. It was a sunny day and the children were going to the park. The camel was in the the zoo. The camel was kept in a cage at the zoo. The camel was kept in a carriage at the zoo. He was, at he was sitting at his desk in his office. He was sitting at his desk in his office. He was sitting at his desk in his office. The police returned to the museum police returned to the museum. police returned to the museum. So I hope you've now had the experience of um, bringing uh, a stream of somewhat unruly sensory information under an apt predictive model, and seen then, or rather heard in this case, how that can bring a structured world of uh, words, in this case, into view. The very same thing is happening, I think, in visual perception. It's uh, the same effect that we were seeing in the White Christmas kind of story, where your expectations are so strong that, in fact, they make you think that there's a signal there, that there's something there, when there isn't. But if predictive processing and, and stories of this kind are on track, then these are, all, um, these are all exercises of the same kind of constructive computational story, and this is where human experience lives. As a philosopher, it, it sometimes interests me to wonder where this leaves the notion of veridical perception. Perception itself is a kind of controlled hallucination. You experience a structured world because you expect a a certain kind of structured world and the sensory information here acts as a kind of feedback on your expectations so it allows you to often correct them, to refine them, but the heavy lifting seems to be being done by the expectations. Does that mean that that perception is a controlled hallucination? I sometimes think it would be good to flip that and just think that, in fact, hallucination is a kind of uncontrolled perception. The basic operating principle here is that you have a rich model of the world, a generative model, as it's known in this literature. What that means is a, a model which is not a discriminative model that just separates patterns out and sort of says, this is a cat and this is a dog, but rather a system that is able using what it knows about the world to create the kinds of pattern that would be cat-like patterns or would be dog-like patterns in the sensorium. So these systems, if you like, learn to imagine how the sensory world would be, and in learning to imagine how the sensory world would be, they use that to do the kind of classification recognition work that would otherwise be done by a by an ordinary feed-forward discriminator. Um, so you know that what that's doing really is making perception and imagination and I think understanding come very very close together. They're a kind of cognitive package deal here because if you perceive the world in this kind of way then you have the resources to kind of create virtual sensory stuff like that from the top down so systems that can perceive the world like this can kind of imagine the world too in a certain sense Um, and that sort of grip on the world seems to me to be very, very close to understanding your world. If I know how the sensory signal is going to behave at many, many different levels of abstraction and at many scales of space and time, so I can take the scene as it currently is and project it into the future and sort of know what's going to happen if, um, if you hit the can, and so on, um, that, that way of perceiving the world seems to me to be a a way of understanding the world. So it it would be very reasonable to ask, so where does does the knowledge that drives the generative model in these cases that is doing so much work, where does that knowledge come from? And one of the cool things is that learning here proceeds in exactly the same way as, um, as perception itself. So the idea would be you basically, moment by moment, a multi-level neural architecture is trying to predict the sensory flow. In order to do better at predicting the sensory flow, it needs to pull out regular structures within that flow at different time scales, so-called hidden causes or latent variables. And so over time, with a powerful enough system, I might pull out things like um, tables and chairs and cats and dogs. you can learn to do that just by trying to predict the sensory flow itself. Maybe a, a nice sort of a nice simple case of that would be something like um, learning the grammar of a language. So if you knew the grammar of a language, that would be helpful in predicting what words come in next. But one way that you can learn the grammar of a language is to try again and again to predict what words come in next, um, pull out the sort of latent variables and structure that is necessary to do that prediction task and then you've acquired the model that you can then use to do the prediction task in future. So these stories are a kind of standing invitation to this sort of bootstrapping where the prediction task that underlies perception and action itself installs the models that are used in the prediction task. So it's a very pleasing sort um, sort of symmetry there. So I think once you've got action on the table in these stories and the idea is that we bring action about by predicting sensory flows that are non-actual and then getting rid of prediction errors relative to those sensory flows by bringing the action about Um, that means epistemic action as it's sometimes called is right there on the table so systems like that can not just act in the world to fulfill their goals they can also act in the world so as to get better information to fulfill their goals and that's something that uh, active animals do all the time. You know, The, 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 the chicken, when it, <clears throat> when it sort of bobs its head around, is moving its sensors around to get information that allows it to do depth perception that it can't do unless it bobs its head around. Um, when you go into a darkened room and you flip the light switch, you're performing a kind of epistemic action, because you didn't your goal wasn't specifically, normally. hit the light switch, it was to do something in the room, but you perform this action that then improves your state of information so you can do the thing you need to do. So it turns out that in fact um, epistemic action and practical action and perception and understanding are now all rolled together in this this, um, nice package. It's interesting then to ask the question if your models are playing such a big role in how you perceive and experience the world, what does it actually mean to perceive and experience the world as it is? I think there's basically what these stories do is ask you to to think again about that question. So take the sine wave speech example and ask yourself, when did you hear what was really there? Did you hear what was really there when you heard it just as kind of beeps and burps? Or did you hear what was really there when you heard the sentence through the beeps and buzzes? I don't think there's a good answer to that question. Um, If predictive processing is on track, though, one thing we can say is this. Even to hear it as beeps and bursts and buzzes was to bring some kind of model to bear, just one that didn't reach as deeply into into the kind of external causal structure as the one that actually does have words in it. So I think an upshot here is that there's no experience without the application of some kind of model to try to sift what is, what is worthwhile for a creature like you in the signal and what isn't worthwhile for a creature like you. And Because that's what we're doing all the time no wonder um, certain things like um, placebo effects, medically unexplained symptoms, phantom phone vibrations these all begin to fall into place as very much just a kind of expression of the fundamental way that we're working when we construct perceptual experience so in the case of for example medically unexplained symptoms um, these will be cases where people might have um, blindness or paralysis with no um, no medically um, no medically known cause but more than that very often the the symptoms here will have a shape that actually in principle can't have a sort of simple physiological cause so a nice example is um, you might get someone with a with a certain sort of blind spot in their field of vision, and then ask them what the sort of what the width of that blind spot is when it is um, when it is mapped close to the eye and when it's mapped far from the eye. And in these cases, some people have what's called tubular visual field defect, and so they say that it's the same wherever it's mapped. This is optically, physiologically, optically impossible. Um, so it's pretty clear in cases like that that what's doing the work is something like belief, expectation, prediction. It's a model of what it would be like to have a visual field defect that is doing the work. So yeah, on the on the um, medically unexplained symptoms, tubular visual field defect thing, uh, one way to think about that then is that your beliefs about, in, in, in this broad sense of beliefs, it doesn't mean beliefs that you necessarily hold as a person, but somehow they got in there somehow. So these multi-level systems harbour all kinds of predictions and beliefs which, um, which the agent themselves might even disavow. Um, honest placebos work, for example. If someone is told that this, uh, that this pill is an inert substance, um, you can nonetheless get symptomatic relief from those substances as long as they're presented by people in white coats with the right packaging so if mid-levels of expectation are engaged regardless of what you the sort of you know the person somehow sitting at the top thinks Um, so in the case of medically unexplained symptoms it looks like they're the kind of they're a sort of physiological version of the white Christmas effect something like you know there are bodily signals there and if your expectations about the shape of those signals is strong enough then you can bring about the experiences that those expectations describe, just just like White Christmas only done here in this sort of somatosensory kind of of domain. So there's interest in work emerging, I think, on the all about um, not just medically unexplained symptoms, but even medically explained symptoms. So if people live with uh, a medically explained problem for long enough, then they can build up all kinds of expectations about the shape of their own symptomology which share a lot in common with the medically unexplained cases so um, you know the same person with a chronic condition um, on different days and in different contexts will have very very different experiences even if the physiological state although the bedrock state seems to be exactly the same so there's a nice paper came out recently by uh, Berg and colleagues and it was arguing that in the case of chronic chronic effects, chronic pain for example, um, then an awful lot of ordinary symptomology has very much the character of the symptomology in the medically unexplained cases. So it sort of puts neurotypical and kind of less typical cases on a continuum, kind of on a par, um, which I think is quite, quite interesting. Acute pain, uh, acute cases of, of are somewhat different because there you haven't built up those regimes of expectation, and there's a very straight sort of straight signal being dealt with. Although even there, it seems as if um, your long-term model of the world makes a big difference uh, as to how that signal plays out. But anyway, I think there's a there's a there's a large area here, broadly speaking, um, computational psychiatry, I suppose, where work on placebo effects, medically unexplained symptoms, autism, the effects of psychedelics, schizophrenia, all of these things are, are being thought about under this um, general framework. I think it's uh, an interesting sort of maybe this will be the test, one of the test cases for whether we make progress using these tools with understanding um, the nature of human consciousness. But, yeah. So we had a visit actually from um, Robin Carhart. Harris, um, who uh, works on psychedelics and is now working on psychedelics and predictive coding. Um, Some very interesting ideas coming out there, I thought, uh, kind of. uh, In particular, the idea that we have sort of that what the kind of serotonergic psychedelics do is they relax the the influence of top-down beliefs and top-down expectations so that sensory information can kind of find new channels, new ways of, new ways of going. Um, and also some of the effects on, on, on people with depression of even kind of single experiences like this where maybe part of what goes on there is, you know, we hold this structured world in view in part by our expectations and they don't just imply, they don't just, they're not just about the world, they're also about ourselves. And if you can relax some of those expectations and experience if you like, uh, a way of, a way of encountering the world where you don't model yourself as a depressive person, for example, even a brief experience like that can really apparently have long-term lasting effects. So, you know, I think, I think that some of the, some of the kind of Bayesian brain predictive processing folk are doing some pretty cool things, looking at the action of psychedelics, um, yeah, looking at sort of effects of, sensory deprivation. Um, So for any of these things you can sort of ask, um, you know, what, how would different balances sort of held in place by this prediction meets sensory information construct, how would those different balances play out under different regimes of um, neurotransmitters, for example, or under different environmental regimes where you might have a a astroboscopic light being flashed at you very rapidly, the University of Sussex has one of these and it creates surprisingly intense sensations and if you were to sit in it for uh, a couple of hours you might get full dissociation, even for a few minutes you get, you get um, experiences of colours, of an intensity that I've never experienced before. If you begin to ask what these sorts of stories have to say, if anything, about the nature of human consciousness, sort of there are several things to say. The first is that the basic construction of experience, I think, is already brought, is already illuminated just by thinking in terms of this mixture of top-down expectations and bottom-up sensory evidence and the way that mixture gets varied in different contexts and by different... Um, by different uh, interventions. At the same time, there's a, sort of, there's a strong intuition that some people have that consciousness is special, and that whatever sort of tools I was using to, to maybe make progress with the white Christmas experiments and phantom phone vibrations, somehow they're not really getting to grips yet with what matters most about consciousness, which is how it feels, the redness of the sunset, the, you know, the taste of the tequila, and so on. Um, there's quite a lot to say about how that should should pan out here in some ways i guess my view is a sort of illusionist view so i think a large part of this 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 debate over consciousness is is sort of misguided because there's actually nothing there i think what is really there is a kind of is a sort of there's a kind of multidimensional matrix of real things and among those real things there's a tendency to think there's another thing and that other thing isn't real <laughs> That's that's one way of thinking about it. So among the real dimensions, I think, are the perceptual dimension that we've spoken about, the dimension of acting to engage your world, a lot of super interesting work on the role of interceptive signals in all of this. And so apart from the extraceptive signals that we take in from vision, sound and so on, and apart from the proprioceptive signals from our body that maybe are what we predict in order to move our body around, there's also all of the interoceptive signals that are coming from the heart and from the viscera, from um, yeah, from heart, viscera, guts, etc. Um, one of the effects of the, the the general predictive processing story here is that all of this is just sensory evidence thrown in a big pot. So. Um, how I perceive the external world to be can be constantly inflected by how I'm perceiving my internal world to be. You see this, for example, in experiments where people are given false cardiac feedback, so they're made to think that their hearts are beating faster than they are, and under conditions like that, if they're exposed to a neutral face, then they're more likely to judge that the face is anxious or fearful or angry or something like that. And so it looks as if what's going on is that our constant in-touchness with um, signals from our own body, our brains are taken as just more information about how things are. Um, so in that sense, there's a sort of Jamesian flavour to some of the work on experience that comes out of predictive processing, where the idea is that um, emotion, for example, is very much tied up with the role that interception plays in, um, in giving us a grip on how things are in the world. So you know William James famously said that the, uh, you know, the, the, the fear that we feel when we see the bear has a lot to do with the experience of our own heart beating and our preparations to flee and all of that bodily stuff. If you took all that away, perhaps the, the, the feeling of fear would be sort of bereft of its real substance. And I think there is something genuine in there that being being subtly inflected by interoceptive information is part of what makes our conscious experience of the world the kind of experience that it is. So artificial systems without interoception, they could perceive their world in that extraceptive way. They could act in their world, but they would be lacking what seems to me to be one important dimension of what it is to be a conscious human being in the world. So, at that point i think we've got we've got a number of real dimensions to to consciousness. one of them is the sort of bringing a structured world into view and perception in part by structured expectations um, the other one is uh, inflection of all of that by interception. Yeah. so you can then ask questions about the, the the temporal depth of the model that you're bringing to bear, and that seems like a really important dimension too if you're model has enough depth and temporal depth then you can turn up in your own model of the world. So I can um, technically here I can reduce prediction error by projecting myself into the future and uh, asking how certain things a creature like me the way I conceive myself to be might do would serve to reduce prediction error in the future. So in that way I sort of turn up as a sort of latent variable in my own model of the world. That seems important too, in human consciousness at least. That's part of what makes us um, sort of distinguishable selves with goals and projects that, uh, that we can reflect on. So all of that, I think, that, that sort of matrix is real. Um, the thing that I don't think is real is uh, qualia a special bit. So I think to understand that, we need to take a more illusionist stance. To do that would be to ask uh, to ask some version of what Dave Chalmers is lately calling the, um, the meta-hard puzzle, or the meta-hard question would be here. So that would be, um, what is it about systems like us that explains why it is that we think that there are hard puzzles of consciousness, why we think that the conscious mind might be something very distinct from the rest of the physical order, why we think that there are genuine questions to be asked about zombies, all of that stuff. So I think what what Chalmers thinks is that any solution to the meta-hard question, the question of why we think there's a hard question, why we say and do the things that express apparent puzzlement of this kind, um, those are clearly easy questions in Dave's sense. You can say something about how you would build a a robot that might get puzzled or appear to be puzzled about its own experience in those ways. Um, You might think, well, there's something sort of very solid about all this perceptual stuff, I can be highly confident of it and yet how the world really is could be very varied. I think if you're the sort of robot that can start to do those sorts of acrobatics you're the sort of robot that might invent a hard problem, that might um, begin to think that uh, there are, there's, there's more than a grain of truth in, in dualism and so on. So one thing that I think we we might like to do is to to try to take an illusionist stance to just that particular bit of the hard problem while being kind of realist about all the other stuff, thinking that there's something to say about the role of the body, there's something to say about what it takes to bring a structured world into view. Do all of that stuff and then also solve the meta-hard puzzle and I think you've solved all there is to solve, whereas Dave Chalmers, I'm sure, will say look at that point you've shown us how to build a robot that will fool us into thinking that it's conscious in a certain sense it might even fool itself into thinking that it's conscious but it wouldn't really because maybe it wouldn't have any experiences at all when it's doing all that stuff. Yes yeah, so I, uh, I think that Dan Dennett's take on consciousness is a perfect fit with the predictive process intake take on consciousness. So for, for many years Dan has kind of argued that there's um, that there's something illusory here in some sense, some kind of user illusion, some kind of um, self-spun narrative illusion um, and I think that what predictive processing does is is perhaps gives us a little bit more of the mechanism that might support the emergence of an illusion like that. Um, Dan himself has written some very interesting stuff on the way that um, s- predicting our own sort of embodied responses to things might... Um, or lead us down the down the kind of track of thinking that qualia are very, very sort of fundamental, special, weird, weird goings on inside us. So um, I might predict some of my own sort of, sort of chewing and oohing and ah in responses to the cute baby. And then I find myself in the presence of the cute baby. I make those sorts of responses, and I think, oh, you know, cuteness is real. It's a genuine property of uh, some things in the world. So what Dan's argued there is, well, we maybe we get puzzled because we're kind of we're kind of fooled by our own Bayesianism here. We kind of um, this sort of model of how things are gets to grips with how we're going to respond, and we then sort of reify something within that nexus as these sort of weird intervening qualia. But you don't need the weird intervening qualia. You just have um, responses that come about in certain kinds of circumstance. Mm-hmm. So I think there's a sort of, there's a rather natural fit between Dan's approach and, and these approaches. And they're both a kind of illusionism where we're, we're both saying, look, whatever consciousness really is, it can't be what, what, what Dave Chalmers thinks it is.